This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is an RNZ podcast. Uh, you know, this scenario when you read it and hear about it is quite extraordinary where a group of nine people stand around and execute somebody and repeatedly shoot them. Um, you know, there was never any reports of gunfire. Uh, it was a, a suburban street. Uh, there's, there's no evidence of that. There was no forensic evidence. There was no blood. There was nothing to support this theory. There was no marks that would, might have been made by bullets flying around this rather small garage. Hi, I'm Jesse Mulligan. I'm host of the Daily Afternoons program on RNZ. And this is Crimes NZ. It's a series where I talk to people who are connected in some way or other with serious crimes that have happened in this country. Now, in this episode, I'm speaking with private investigator Tim McKinnell, and we're talking about Gail Maney, who served 15 years in jail for a murder which she insists she had nothing to do with. Uh, in August 1989, he uh, packed up his car. Uh, he told a few people that he was heading out fishing. Uh, he uh, said goodbye to his family. Uh, he had fishing rods in his car. Uh, he drove out to West Auckland. Uh, he had indicated to some people that he was heading to Whatapu, uh right out at the uh, Manukau Heads. Uh, he was never seen again, uh, if, uh, if you accept one version of events. Uh, it was believed at that time uh, by and for the following seven or eight years that he had uh, disappeared off the rocks, being swept off the rocks while fishing. They, they find his car, his rods, that sort of thing? They found, uh, they found his car out at Whatapu, uh and there was some equipment that was found uh, in 1989 that, uh, that was recognised as equipment belonging to him at the high tide mark. OK. So case closed? Certainly for the following seven or eight years, it was considered uh, that that was what had happened to him, uh, both by the police and, and many other people. OK. And so before we jump ahead to 1997, we should also mention another murder that took place in August 1989. And the link will become clearer later, but tell me about... Is it Lee Stevens, Leah Stevens? Le- Leah Stevens, that's mm. right. So just a few days later, less than a week later, uh, Leah disappeared from uh, Queen Street. Uh, she was a uh, she was working as a prostitute at the time. Uh, she disappeared and nobody knew what happened to her. It was reported to police a few days later, uh, but it wasn't until her body was found uh, in the forest in West Auckland in 1992 that it was uh, that it was confirmed that it had been a murder. Okay. So what's the next part in the story? Well, from 1992, there was, uh, there was an investigation. The police reinvigorated their search for, uh, for evidence around what had happened to Leah, but it came to... So that's when they found her body. Yeah. That's right, yeah. So the, they, 
there was an investigation that went on for three or four months and it didn't really come to much. Uh, not too much else happened uh, over the following three or four years, but by 1997 there was rumours starting to circulate in the West Auckland uh, community uh, about the uh, about the potential murder of an unknown person. Uh, a man had uh, supposedly been killed in West Auckland. And it really was little more than rumours, gossip and speculation. Uh, but the police got wind of this and as part of... Uh, part of the information they'd received, they'd been told that a uh, person by the name of Stephen Stone had been involved. Uh, the police were particularly interested in him at the time. He had uh, an extensive criminal history. Uh, and so they began a, a series of operations trying to uh, work out who it might have been that had been killed. Uh, one of the names that popped up in the course of that uh, that work was Dean Fuller-Sand's name. Uh, he's, he'd gone missing and his body hadn't been found. And so uh, his name was thrown into the mix as a potential uh, victim of mm. this uh, supposed homicide. By the way, if, if you accept explanation A, that he was washed off the rocks fishing, would it have been unusual that his body wasn't found? Not particularly unusual, no. And so this was the focus of some of the uh, uh, evidence at trial. But it, uh, certainly when people go are swept off the rocks there and other places, uh, the body recovery rate is far from 100%. Okay. And, and does it happen? Do people get swept off the rocks there? Yeah, it's a dangerous beach. And, and that particular night uh, in August 1989, it was a spring tide uh, and it was rough weather. Mm, okay. So back to the police in 1997 who are acting on these rumours and presumably what they're hearing. One of the things they hear is that these two disappearances are linked, right? The ones we've talked about, Dean and Leah. Yeah, well, ultimately that's the view they come to. Okay. Um, and so it's and it's quite a long extrapolated story as how, how they got to that point. Um, but certainly in, in the first instance they began looking at these rumours and they began speaking to a wide range of people about what they knew. Uh, and pressure was being put on some people uh, and a couple of different people had mentioned Stephen Stone's potential involvement and so police really zeroed in on him as the focus of their mm. investigations. Oh, and when did this uh, this other associate, Gail Maney, when did her name become attached to these cases? Well, it, it really wasn't until sort of late 1997, early 1998, her name was thrown in the mix. Uh, she had, um, for a brief time in 1989, associated with Stephen Stone, who and some of her friends had. Um, he was certainly known to them, and they came into the frame uh, through their connection to him. Um, but over a, over the course of a period of months, uh, she became uh, more the focus of more and more attention from the police, her and two or three other women in particular, as well as a couple of, of uh, men. And so what did the police conclude had happened? Ultimately, the Crown case at trial was that uh, that 10 people had been present in a garage in Larnock Road in, in Henderson and that uh, Gail Maney had uh, a vendetta against Dean Fuller-Sands for a supposed burglary he'd committed on their house uh, some weeks earlier and she had instructed or directed Stephen Stone uh, to, uh, to deal with them. And the Crown case is that as a result of that order from Gail, uh, a group of people got together in a suburban garage one afternoon and and uh, repeatedly shot Dean Fuller-Sands. Mm. It's pretty different to the first explanation, isn't it? Uh, very different, very different. Um, it, it's an incredibly complex story, but essentially four people were charged with involvement in, in that scenario. Uh, another four people were... Uh, were secret witnesses for the police and gave evidence, two men, two women. 
And the other two people, one was Dean Fuller-Sands and the other person was a woman called Leah Stevens, who we've previously discussed. What the Crown case was, was that as a result of the shooting of Dean and his, his burial and, and uh, taking his car out to Fodipu and sort of trying to stage uh, this, this scenario that he'd been watched off the rocks, uh, it, the Crown case was that uh, Leah Stevens started getting windy about what she'd seen, what she'd witnessed, uh, was potentially going to talk to the police. And so as a result of that, uh, the Crown cases that uh, Stephen Stone and two others uh, had her disposed of. Mm. And by the way, back to that car that had been uh, found at Fatipu, um, any forensic DNA evidence on that car, fingerprints? No, there was there was nothing uh, on that car pointing to murder at mm. all. Uh, there was some suggestion that the vehicle had been moved at some stage when, uh, when Dean was supposedly out there, uh, but a really crucial piece of evidence that the jury got to hear about was that uh, Dean had a very particular way that he placed a cloth over a part of his car. And when the car was found, that cloth was in that position. Okay. And so I think that's, you know, it's a small piece of evidence, but potentially quite compelling. Yeah. And we're getting to one of the hardest parts of this case, which is that there is no evidence really, right? There's no body, there's not much forensics. All we have is the varying accounts of various people, most of whom have some sort of criminal history or connection mm. uh, to each other or connection to prison. Um, it's pretty hard unpacking the truth from that. And they yeah. change as well, these stories. It, it really is. And, you know, there's not a scrap of forensic evidence. Um, it was several years later that the police identified this address in Larnock Road as the potential scene of this shooting. Uh, you know, this scenario, when you read it and hear about it, is quite extraordinary where a group of nine people stand around and execute somebody and repeatedly shoot them. Um, you know, there was never any reports of gunfire. Uh, it was a suburban street. Uh, there's, there's no evidence of that. There was no forensic evidence. There was no blood. There was nothing to support this theory. There was no marks that would might have been made by bullets flying around this rather small garage. Quite, quite a convenient sort of explanation too if... Um if it was true that he had been murdered, that, that the murderer would chance upon a guy who was on his way fishing, had all his fishing gear in the back and was happened to have go to a, be going to a dangerous, isolated beach, you know, where that other alternative explanation was open to them. Yeah, that's right. And so at its very best, the Crown case is quite extraordinary, mm. uh, even on, on, on their own account. Um, but when you look at what the convictions lie on, and ultimately four people were convicted of involvement, uh, they uh, rely heavily on the evidence of four people, two women, two men, but all of whom have um, name suppression. And uh, some of them have um, done various things to protect their identities, understandably. But two of those witnesses have now retracted that evidence. The two women have retracted their evidence and said none of this ever happened. It didn't happen. It was made up. We were put under a great deal of pressure by the police to mm. say these things. So the, the convictions now lean only on the two men who gave that evidence. I'm speaking with Tim McKinnell, who's an uh, investigator, a private investigator, who's looked at this uh, Gail Maney case, the so-called Gone Fishing case. And um, interestingly, police have this theory as to why Gail had a vendetta against Dean, who was killed. She says she never even met him. That's 
pretty different as well, right? Yeah, yeah, incredibly different. And so, so we have the two women who have retracted their evidence and said none of it ever happened. We were put under a great deal of pressure by the police. Gail Maney says the same thing. She says the police pressure was incredible. Um, and if you accept Gail's position, and I do, then she was able to withstand that pressure. Uh, she was told very clearly, you either work with us or you, uh, you're, in, you're in the dock. Uh, well, she refused to accept the police, what the police wanted her to say, and ultimately she ended up in the dock and, and in prison where, you know, she's back there again today. So it's pretty pretty scary stuff. Um, there are a number of things that we've identified. We've got a, a, um, a small team of people working on it. Julianne Kincaid, QC, is Gail's lawyer. Um, she works out of Blackstone Chambers and has a team working on it. And I'm working with um, Meg Durand and Kutcher Paquin at my office. And it is an extraordinary difficult task um, working through the evidence but one of the things that's really emerged for us is uh, there are really strong gender themes so we have three women telling fairly consistent stories about the pressure they were put under and the threats that were made against them um, to say the things they said well two of them said what the police wanted and Gail withstood that pressure um, and so we're looking very closely at, at what they are telling us about the things that were said to them to, to give the evidence that they gave. So what do you mean by pressure? Well, for example, all three of them say and have said independently that one of the threats uh, that, was, uh, that was made to them that was the custody of their children. Now, they weren't angels at the time. In 1989, they were all leading uh, relatively ad- adventurous lives, if you want to use a euphemism. Mm. But uh, they had uh, children and were felt vulnerable to those threats. They would lose custody of their children if they didn't cooperate with police, was, was one example. Um, there were regular visits, and they, uh, uh, they were told that you're either with us against us or against us, basically. Now, it's important to note that, the, um, that this has been uh, raised before and the, um, some of the police officers involved have, have, have denied that they put pressure on. Uh, but in the podcast, Gone Fishing, that, um, that I think is, was, did a brilliant job of setting the case out, uh, there were some admissions from Mark Franklin, the officer in charge of the case, and he made it uh, clear in that that, yes, absolutely, witnesses were put under pressure. So I guess the question is how much pressure is appropriate. Mm. And when you look at the statements of witnesses or so-called witnesses, do you see them sort of change, solidify, um, fall into line over time? Well, the two women who have since retracted their evidence, you look at their evidence and it changed uh, dramatically at different times. And, you know, the reasons for that, they tell us, are that they were being told what to say. And on occasions they were put in rooms together um, where they were able to compare notes about what um, what their evidence was to be. We look at the men's evidence, who's really the only evidence left against the four people that were convicted, and they told an extraordinary number of uh, accounts, different versions, completely completely contradictory in places. Uh, one of them told somewhere between nine and 12 different versions of events before they settled on what the Crown case was. Um, and, you know, I think in that context, we need to remember that both of those men, and I don't think I've touched on this before, were given immunity from prosecution for the rape and murder of uh, Leah Stevens. Essentially, they admitted involvement in her rape and murder and walked away scot-free on the understanding that they would provide, um, that they would corroborate the police's version of what happened in the previous murder. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, I guess uh, 
that the argument could be made that they qualified for that if they weren't primary offenders. Uh, but when you look at immunity from prosecution, uh, I think our team is certainly forming the view that that should only offered, be offered to people that are credible. Uh, when you're t talking about five, seven, nine, twelve different versions of events, I'm not sure uh, that you can make the claim that they're credible witnesses. Tell me about the lead investigator. Well, uh, Mark Franklin led the investigation. He was a relatively high-profile pro, uh, investigator uh, in West Auckland throughout the uh, the 90s, and he he ran into trouble himself um, in the years after he left the police. He was he's been convicted in the Cook Islands of drug dealing. Um, we don't place too much emphasis on that. I mean, he uh, you know. But one of the things he admitted, which I thought was fascinating in the in the podcast, the Gone Fishing podcast, was that he was uh, regularly using cannabis um, throughout uh, this investigation and other investigations as a means for coping with some of the stresses of the job. And, you know, without wanting to make uh, moral judgments about that, it calls into question his judgment around, uh, around gangs, around uh, drug dealers, around uh, potentially prostitutes, all of these were, uh, were facets of the investigation that he was managing. And so a question arises about whether he was compromised uh, in those areas, but also around his judgment. If he thought it was appropriate to break the law um, because it suited him at that time, what else was he prepared to do? Have you heard from him in the course of your investigation? We haven't spoken to him yet. Um, the only thing words we've heard from him really are uh, what he uh, said in the podcast. Uh, I think eventually we'll, we'll approach him and see if he'll speak to us. Mm. You mentioned, so I think there were four witnesses, um, or so-called witnesses, two events. Two of them were women who have recanted their stories, and then two men who I think have stuck to their stories, except a former police officer has come forward to say one of them uh, gave, said that he'd been lying about the evidence he gave. Is that right? No, well, there's there's mixed evidence around those two, uh, those two men, and I don't, I think. Um, I probably don't want to talk too much about them because it's a sensitive area in terms okay. of in terms of our work. Uh, but there are we have had our former police officers come forward and talk to us about um, various parts of the investigation, and we've had some um, some concerns expressed. Uh, one of the reasons we're talking publicly about the case now is there are there are a handful of people who uh, know a great deal about this case that could help us, that could help the truth emerge. In my view, and what sorts of people? Uh, well, people that were uh, that were mixing um, with with these people, um, potentially police officers. I think there are at least a couple of police officers that are deeply uncomfortable with some of what went on, and we'd like them to come forward and talk to us on the record. Uh, and you know, I th in terms of what happened to Leah Stevens, we've we've got another working theory. Uh, you know, if Dean Fuller Sands wasn't killed in the garage, like the Crown case says, then there is no motive for Stephen Stone and the two other man men to have hurt her. And if that's true, then what happened to her? We've got some working theories about what might have happened to her, and uh, we're exploring those. What's driving you, by the way? <laughs> Uh, well, it's fascinating work. It's interesting work. Um, miscarriage, presumably just... unpaid work. No, no, we're f we're very fortunate. We have uh, we have some legal aid funding. Um, the uh, it took a while to come through in Tana Porter's case, but I think there is broadly an acceptance um, with legal aid now that sometimes these cases are worth funding, mm. um, and so we have some legal aid funding to do the work that we're doing. Great, and it's um, yeah, it's an important that we do have that. One thing I wanted to mention is um, 
according to this second account of what happened uh, to Dean, they all went out and buried him in the woods, right? Yeah. Yeah. So could anyone lead police to a body or where it was buried? Well, you'd think they could, wouldn't you? But they couldn't. Uh, my view is that uh, these men took police on a wild goose chase. Uh, there was days and probably tens of thousands of dollars spent searching for uh, the burial spot, the supposed burial spot, and of course it was never found. And our view of that is because the very original story about Dean being swept off the rocks is the true one, mm. and that if that is true, uh, then the scale of the lies that have been told um, are, are something that I don't think this country has ever seen before. Lies told by... By these witnesses, yeah. by these two male witnesses. Okay. I mean, that, that is what the Crown case rests on solely now. And if, if what they have said is a pack of lies, then it's quite extraordinary what has unfolded from those lies. Namely the imprisonment of two people? Conviction of four people, imprisonment of two people. Both of those people are presently in prison um, for this crime and... You know, if it's if it's a crime that never was, then that's an extraordinary injustice. It's you know, it's one thing to be in prison for a crime that did happen. It's quite another to be in prison for a crime that never happened. Uh, and Stephen Stone, who is the person that Gail Maney allegedly ordered to um, to, to do this execution, um, have you spoken to him? I have. Can he help her out? Yes, he's he's not our client, but I have spoken to him, and it's um, you know he maintains his innocence, mm. and um, it's it's not my place to speak on his behalf, but it's a- absolutely clear uh, from Gail's instructions that um, that what the Crown said happened didn't happen, uh, and that's inconsistent with my conversation with Stephen Stone. So Gail Maney was convicted once in 1999. And was there an appeal or, or for some reason for a retrial? Yeah, this is another curious thing about the case. There was an appeal. There was a judgment um, after the after the first trial and, and Stephen Stone and Gail Maney, uh, sorry, uh, one of the other uh, suspects, not Stephen Stone, and Gail Maney got a second trial um, and were convicted again. Uh, Gail appealed again in 2005, so the second trial was in 2000. Gail appealed in 2005, and unfortunately the one of the Court of Appeal judges that sat on that appeal was the original trial judge from the first trial. And uh, you know, I, I personally have some difficulty with that. He was criticised in, in having uh, Gail's first conviction quashed, and here he was popping up uh, six years later as a Court of Appeal judge on her case. Okay. It must happen a bit, I suppose. Well, uh, it probably does. Yeah. Just doesn't, essentially doesn't look very good. Can you compare this to Tainer Porter? We um, covered the Tainer Porter case, uh, I think it was last week, on this New Zealand crime feature, and you were involved in that as well. Similarities for you? Uh, s- similarities in some respects in terms of, you know, in my view, gross uh, injustice but uh, quite different cases, um, although, you know, from a similar time, time period. And I think if we look at some of the history of our wrongful conviction cases, there's a period from sort of 1980 through to the late 1990s where I think there's some real uh, real problems with uh, some of the convictions that were entered for quite serious crimes. And so in that respect, uh, both Tainer's and Gail's cases have, have similarities in terms of interview techniques and police approaches to evidence and those sorts of things. 
By the way, under what on what grounds were her appeals granted? Anything of interest? Um, you know, no, quite te- te- quite, quite technical, uh, rather than uh, than cl- claims as as we're now claiming of actual innocence are around um, fair trial yeah. issues. Okay, so she served her time and was released. Yeah, well, as a murderer, she was um, convicted murderer. She was sentenced to life imprisonment um, with a minimum non-parole period. She's been released a couple of times and recalled. Uh, I spoke to her. I went and saw her in prison this week and had a chat to her, and she's a pretty open gal. I mean, she she was involved in the podcast, and we, we talked about the fact that she's been recalled again. I think it's fair to say that life, like it wasn't for Tana and isn't for Tana, it's not easy for her, and so she's had um, some struggles. Uh, but she's keen to get back out again. She's got a parole hearing coming up in a few weeks uh, now that she's been recalled and, and her instructions to us are to try and get her out if we can. Mm. Uh, what's a recall? It's when you're out on parole and you break some condition or you something. You breach a condition, mm. yeah. yeah. And so um, probation have deemed that she's breached a condition um, and, and she's been recalled on that. The parole board will have a hearing to listen to what she has to say about what's been alleged. Mm. Uh, I mean, Tana Porter had a happy ending, really. I mean, a complicated, happy ending. But, um, you know, he, he was found to be innocent. Yes. Got some compensation, is now free. And so what are the chances that this will happen to Gail as well? Well, we're hopeful. I mean, uh, what we're, it's not lost on us that what we're alleging and what Gail is alleging is uh, an extraordinary miscarriage. I mean, it's not it's not going to be easy to prove all these years later. But... I. I, I, we wouldn't be, our team wouldn't be throwing ourselves into this if we weren't confident that um, that we have strong grounds to and, and a real opportunity to prove her complete innocence. What, I mean, what strategies do you have now? You, you mentioned that if you can um, find another uh, reason or, or perhaps perpetrator of that other murder, it sort of unravels the whole police theory on the on the Dean murder. That's no doubt one of them, but um, are you appealing for any other sort of, um, you know, appeal or or pardon? We've had, we've got, you know, one of the witnesses has come forward and retracted, and that's new and fresh evidence, and we think pretty compelling evidence Mm. that's consistent with earlier uh, evidence that had been dismissed. So we have that, and there's a couple of other pieces of evidence we're developing. I think um, we've analysed the evidence... uh, that was before the courts in a way that hasn't been done before and I think we can demonstrate some things to the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court or wherever we go in a way that's never been done before. Um, it's When you unpack it uh, properly, it's an extraordinary case in every sense and I think we're reasonably confident we're on the right track. Mm. Anything we haven't covered or are we up to date? Uh, no, I think we're up to date on the big points. It's uh, it's you know it's an extraordinary case. It's going to take a while, but um, I think we've covered most of it. Uh, again, I would reiterate that people will know things about the case, and and if they do, they should come and talk to us, mm. and they can do so confidentially to begin with, if if they want to test the waters. So long ago, eh? yeah, it's long time ago, and we, and we need we need to be really alert to the fragility of human memories.
You've been listening to Crimes NZ, and I'm Jesse Mulligan. There are more episodes of this series on the RNZ podcast page or on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you catch your favourite podcasts. And if you like this one, try Black Sheep. That's another award-winning RNZ podcast series. Just head to the RNZ podcast page for this and other great podcasts. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.